The information discussed in this episode is intended as general information only. It is not intended for one-on-one medical advice, and you should always consult your healthcare practitioner before making any changes. And if you like the content discussed in this episode, please go leave a review so that others can benefit from it as well. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Okay, resetters. So we are in part two of our interview with Dr. Bill Schindler. If you didn't hear part one, please go back and watch it. He was so profound and so deep in his thinking around food. And he was such a great storyteller that we decided to split this into two sections so that you guys don't miss anything. I kept, I mean, he didn't have a hard stop time. I didn't have a hard stop time. So we just like kept the conversation going. It was incredible. But if you're coming to this as, and you haven't listened to the first one, please go back and listen to the first one because everything that he says will make a lot more sense if you sort of hear the journey. That yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And part one had so many great nuggets about easy lateral changes that you can make just to have better all more congruent living with your food. Yeah. And part of my desire to bring him on is to give you a little bit of a background of how I ended up doing this interview with him was that I was interviewing Brian Sanders, who is a filmmaker, and he made a a film called Food Lies. And I really was in a really cool conversation. You guys can go listen to that podcast. Very, very interesting about the history of food. And he mentioned something about how our digestive systems were smaller now that we've evolved into uh, changing our intestinal tract based off of our modern living. And I, I had never heard that. That blew me away. And so when I questioned him on it, he's like, oh, you need to listen. You need to interview Dr. Bill Schindler. And so that was the the catalyst for us bringing him on. And I literally had no idea that we would, so many of my answers around nutrition would be answered in these two episodes, this whole interview series with him. Yeah. And he had, he's just had, I mean, you'll hear in part one, how many countries he's traveled to, how many indigenous cultures he's studied. So he's just got this amazing brain about how our bodies have developed over centuries and centuries. He talked about the brain and the digestive system and how they've altered throughout time. Yeah. And so he's in, when I went to go do some research on him for the interview, he's a archaeologist and an anthropologist. And so I was thinking, my gosh, like that's an interesting combination. And now he's talking about food. But when you, if you listen to this whole, the both episodes all the way through, you will see that his background in archaeology and anthropology is what is giving him such an amazing perspective on the foods we should be eating today. And it's funny how we have so much, we give so much credibility and authority to doctors, especially our, in our, our medical doctors in our healthcare system, but they have such limited nutritional knowledge. And they, even that knowledge is textbook, 
But the opportunity to go and talk to an archaeologist about what our our ancestors 300,000 years ago were eating and how we've evolved to need to eat things that are similar and different. It was really one of the most mind-blowing experiences that I've had in my profession, in my life, perhaps. It was incredible. I would agree. I would agree. And I think that's why we liked talking to Brian Sanders so much was he sat down and talked with so many experts in so many different fields that he has this alternate perspective that you're right. Like the medical profession has a very narrow-minded, they're only focused on X type of patient. They've only had X type of college studies done. And that's where like their vision goes. So it's it's really fun to talk to these people that have, have a more worldly view on lots of different cultures, lots of different styles of eating and variation and fasting and just how it's worked over time. Oh, the travel. I mean, the fact that he's lived with so many different indigenous people. Holy moly. And in this one, you're going to hear, this is why we split it into two at the end. I love the five questions that we ask because you really get spontaneous answers. And he talked about a tribe in Kenya that he went and visited and what they were doing eating wise and how beneficial that was. So you are also getting this perspective of somebody who's been around the world, which was incredible. So awesome. How much do you want to travel with him? Oh, so much. It's happening. (laughs) Yeah. So 2021, he's going to Ireland and going to do native eating there. He's going to go to Kenya. He has a couple. And then I forget where the third one. South uh, Italy. He's going to a person that does cheese. Yeah. So we will be joining him definitely on one of those trips. So stay tuned. We'll keep you guys posted on that. But before I go into the second part of the episode, let me give you a little bit of a background. If you listen to the first episode, you already have heard me say this. But so he's Dr. Bill Schindler. He's the director of Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College where he's also an associate professor of archaeology and anthropology. Two years ago, he co-hosted the National Geographic show, The Great Human Race, which I have to tell you, we never even got into talking about. and would have been so interesting, but I really wanted to understand food better. So he spent a year abroad recently continuing his hands-on research and professional development by immersing himself and his family with indigenous and traditional groups around the world to learn about their foods and diet. As an experimental archaeologist and a primitive technologist, his specialties are in recreating technologies of the past to better interpret our ancestral diets. His current focus is learning how to translate the outcomes of of that research into something meaningful for the modern-day diet and health, and is working to fuse lessons from our ancestral dietary past with modern culinary arts to create a food system that is relevant, accessible, and meaningful to the modern Western life. And I think you will see on this episode that he is accomplishing just that. So enjoy. Glad you joined us for the second part. Hey, Recenters. As we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. 
So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash Reset Academy. Excited to see you there. Sauerkraut's amazing. Sauerkraut is amazing. And that's a great, you, you bring up a great example because sauerkraut, which probably everybody already knows, is, is literally cabbage and salt. That's been through the fermentation process. But if, you, if I shredded up cabbage and put salt on it, put it in front of you, and gave you real sauerkraut that's fermented for a couple of weeks, they are two completely different foods with the same ingredients, right? It's just, it's that, it's that technology of the fermentation that transformed it into something else. And a lot of times we mimic what's happening in, in animals, uh, animals already. So I'll give you a quick example, but this is, I love this example. So three years ago, I was on sabbatical. My family and I, we were on sabbatical in Ireland. We were based out of Ireland, but we were living and working with different people around the world. We we're in like 13 different countries that year. So, but we had a lot of time in Ireland and I got called to do this show. They have a show there. It's a great show called What Are You Eating? And it's going into its third season. And, and I got a point. Hey, listen, we'd like you to be on as, as a guest for the show and uh, this and that. And I said, oh, it sounds great. What's the show on? And they said, well, it's on, it's on veganism. And I, I don't know if you're talking to the right person. <laughs> I, I, I don't know enough about it. And I certainly don't want to suggest that I do because there's you know, incredibly valuable things about it that I, I don't want to mess it up. And I'm like, why are you talking to me? Like, no, 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 no. This is what's going to happen. The host is going to come on and a great guy. And what he's going to do is he's going to get blood work done and he's going to go on, you know, be a vegan, a full vegan diet for, I don't know, a month, two months, something. And then during that time, he's going to go around the country and talk to a lot of the leaders you know, of the vegan movement. And then he's going to get a blood test at the end. And then what we'd like to do is bring you out and have you talk us through the role of animals in the human diet through time. Maybe. And I'm like, oh, okay, I, I can do that. I feel very comfortable doing that. But it's fine. He said, they said, well, can you bring some of your tools and show us how to make, you know, early? I said, absolutely. I said, well, can you butcher an animal? 
I said, you want me to butcher an animal on, tea, on Irish TV? <laughs> and they said, absolutely. I said, okay. So I said, I'll tell you what, uh, can I bring a couple students? Because I was a visiting professor at UCD when I was there. And I actually had some students from my college here over there working at NAM. So they said, yeah, absolutely. So I had all these, I want to set the scene of how insane this was. This is one of those light bulb moments for me. So we're at a place just south of Dublin in the Wicklow Mountains called Powersport Waterfall. It is gorgeous, beautiful, pristine, like Irish. And we're in the middle of nowhere, film crews out there. And a good buddy of mine, Jason O'Brien, had got us two deers, two rabbits, and two ducks. So we're, I'm set up with the host. I have a bunch of stone tools out. I'm walking him through this. I have three of my students with these animals, with these razor-sharp stone tools. They're butchering these animals in the foreground. And this guy's talking to me, and I'm worried about the students getting cut or saying something stupid. And all this stuff's happening at the same time. And then he says to me, can you pick up one of those ducks? Maybe cut it open with that stone tool and then like pull out all the guts again on TV. And he's like, yeah, so, okay. So I walked over and I, I cut it open and I reached all the way up inside of this duck and I pulled everything out in one, at one time and everything is sort of laid out on my arm. Like all the innards are laid out on my arm. And when I saw that, I had, again, this light bulb moment and I have to sort of set this up first. This guy, Jason O'Brien, I was working with is an incredible food producer and supplier around Ireland. And he's got a company called Roundstone Bread. And this company only makes sourdough bread using ancient grains available in Ireland thousands of years ago. It's it's a brilliant company. We had just done a bunch of sort of things together, public, uh, you know, talks and things together with this bread. And I was making fermented butter and we were doing a bunch of stuff. So this, you know, the idea of, of sourdough and all this was on my mind already. And I had just been up to the north of Ireland and we were using these ancient corn stones, these grinding stones, right? So this was all in my mind. Some of it just happened a couple of days beforehand. And I pulled out all the parts of this duck and I looked down at this duck and at the top of my hand was its crop. And its crop, it's, it's right, you know, when the food goes into its mouth, it goes right into a crop. And a crop is sort of like an enlarged you know, part of the esophagus, really. And it when they eat the grains, the grains go into the crop and they sit there for a long time, sometimes 12 to 16 hours. And this was full of barley. This, this duck's crop was full of barley. And I saw the whole intestinal tract. And I immediately realized, answers to some of the questions I get all the time, the question, should we as humans eat bread and all this? So I looked at this and I said, oh my gosh, like when a, du- a duck is designed, it is a a granivorous bird. So it is designed to eat grains. And when a duck eats grains, it, it takes its bill or beak or whatever it is, and it grabs the grain, a raw grain, and it swallows it. And then it goes into the crop. And it sits in this enlarged muscular pouch for 12 to 16 hours. It's dark. It's warm. It's moist. And during that time, those grains soak, they ferment, and sometimes even sprout. Then, and only then, does it go down into its gizzard which are two muscular discs like this, and all the little grit and rocks that the birds eat on purpose go in between it, and they grind the soaked, fermented, sometimes sprouted grains. And then and only then does it go into you know the rest of the digestive tract, which for this conversation operates very similar to ours. So I was looking at that thinking to myself, oh my gosh, you know, the, first of all, that crop and that gizzard are essential to that eating that grain. What if I took one of those grains, if the duck wasn't dead, right? And I took one of those grains, it could bypass the crop and the gizzard and stick it in, you know, lower in the digestive tract. 
what would happen? Would it get sick? Would it die? I don't know. I'll never know the answer to that. But all of a sudden, what I did realize was that duck, other than cooking, was making sourdough bread inside of its body. Interesting. So here's the kicker. The, the question that I didn't think I would ever be able to answer, I answered six months ago. I came across this thing called angel wing disease, which is when you, the really nice old people that sit on the park bench in the parks in New York City, whatever, and they feed the ducks and the geese Wonder Bread, they come down with a malnourishment disease called angel wing. Mm. And think about how crazy this is. These birds are designed to eat grains. And these old people sitting on the bench, I'm not thinking on old people, these nice people that are sitting, are giving the birds exactly what they're designed to eat in the what part, right? What? It's grains. But the how part's different. It's never been through the lactic fermentation. It's never been through that, that sort of fermentation that's happening in the crop. It's only been through a yeast fermentation, right? Which is what Wonder Bread happens. So when we make sourdough bread, the difference between sourdough bread and traditional sandwich bread is that regular, I hate the word use, regular bread is made with yeast that when it, it, it you know eats the sugars and carbohydrates and produces carbon dioxide and alcohol. Carbon dioxide makes it rise and the alcohol gets burned off when it's cooked. Sourdough bread uses wild yeast, which essentially does the same thing, but also bacteria that eat the carbohydrates as well, but do two things. They chemically and physically transform the grains into something that's safer and more digestible and more nourishing for our bodies. Now, I am not suggesting that people who don't eat bread start eating bread. What I am suggesting is if you do eat bread, the only way to make those grains safe and nourishing for our bodies, because we are not designed to eat grains, is to go through a true sourdough process, just like what's happening naturally inside of that duck. Because even when it skips it on that duck, they get sick and they die. Again, not, I'm not suggesting start people start eating bread. But if you are eating it, the processing is the, important, is the most important part of it. And we can, we can do the same thing with cheese and we can go on and on. But that... I was going to say, oh God, I have so many thoughts. So the first thing, we don't have anywhere in our body that, like a duck, we don't have anything that allows that a bread to sit and ferment. It goes right, in, right into our stomach. And not just, for the amount of time that it needs to, and not okay. in the right state that, that it needs to, not at all. You know, when, when I dove into understanding the microbiome, I, I don't know if you've thought of this, you probably have. I, and this was as little as two years ago. I've been studying health for since I was 15. I've just been fascinated with food and diets and how it affects human performance. And I never realized that there is a pre-digestive scenario going on in our mouth. And so we have good bacteria in our mouth. So when we're chewing and we're chewing slowly, like back to what you said in the beginning, where we're taking time to eat our food and we're chewing it very thoroughly, it gets pre-digested there before it goes into the stomach. If we don't do that, if we chew it quickly, if we drink water with it, or even worse, if we start using toothpaste that is an antibacterial toothpaste or mouthwash, we have, clean, we have killed the good bacteria in our mouth that is there to help us pre-digest our food. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one of the other things that's very important is a lot of the enzymes and bacteria, really more bacteria than enzymes, but a lot of the, the living things that help us digest food, are some of them are produced by our bodies. 
some of them are in the food itself if it's in the right state when it goes into our bodies. Milk is a great example. And some of it has to be passed on to us at certain times of our life by other people, right? So, for example, we're way too clean, obviously. And when infants come off of milk and start eating solid foods, they require some of the bacteria from their parents that have well, if they have well-established colonies of these bacteria to get passed on, you know, and what we see in traditional uh, communities around the world and definitely with prehistoric groups is that, you know, they didn't have Gerber sterilized baby food. They had food that they chewed, which, you know, one thing they're chewing it to make it easier for their kids to physically break it down. But when they take that food out of their mouth and put it in their baby's mouth, they're also delivering and transferring all those bacteria as well that they are good colonies of. And I mean, somebody probably get arrested today if we saw them do something. Uh, oh like my that. gosh! Yeah. Oh, and I have so, so many thoughts on that. We we do a lot of detoxing with people, and one of the things that I always tell people is that there are two things you're going to hand or moms you're going to hand off to your children. One is your toxic load. Our tissues are so toxic, and they they come out in pregnancy. And the second is your microbiome. And the greatest thing that a, a, a set of parents so can do when a baby is born is make sure that they're, the parents are working on their own microbiome. Because when they're having skin-to-skin contact, when they're hugging and kissing, they're exchanging bacteria I never thought to have them chew their food. And <laughs> I might have to add that to my list. <laughs> but it, it, there's so much exchange of bacteria that if the parents have really great bacteria, they can actually pass it through to the children based off of not just breast milk, but based off a of human touch and through close breath. And there's so much that we give back and forth from a bacterial level that will help them build an immune system, build new neurotransmitters, break down food. It, it's incredible. It's, you know, it's very cool too. I, this isn't necessarily because it imparts any, you know, first of all, I think it's a very beautiful thing. I mean, there's something beautiful. Many people would listen to that and say, oh my gosh, it's, it's, you know, we're so germ phobic now, especially right now. Right. The, there was a study done recently, people that make sourdough bread, you know, the, the, the wild combination of uh, bacteria and yeast that are used to make the bread is, is specific to different regions. So even if you made the same bread in San Francisco or Paris or here on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, the bread would taste slightly different. It has a slightly different profile of different bacteria and yeast. And it's very cool. Is that why I can't get my bread to taste like it does in Italy? <laughs> that, well, like, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it always tastes so good in Italy. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was like, yeah. But they did a study uh, recently and they wanted to see if they could see differences between different bakeries. Like if, if, if it's so fine of a difference, you know, the resolution is so fine that it's actually down to specific bakeries. And what they came back with was not only is it specific to different bakeries, but it's specific to different bakers' hands. And oh my the gosh. relationship is symbiotic that the bakers were taking on bacteria and yeast from actually working with the dough and giving some to the dough. Now, by the, now it isn't the same with sourdough. By the time you eat it, everything's dead. But and the only thing left of that bacterial and, and yeast load is maybe a little bit of a flavor profile difference or whatever. But that's a beautiful thing. I mean, you don't get that in food anymore. We've standardized incredible. food to the point where it's absolutely incredible. incredible. Yeah. So then this is where my brain's going right now. So what I hear from you is the proper diet right now 
is nose, what do we call it? Nose to tail meat eating mixed with fermented breads and fermented foods. That would be the ideal diet for the human species right now. Okay. Well, let me, and I, I keep trying to, I, I'm trying not to make this any more complicated than it has to be, but let me just say one more thing before I answer that. The difference with humans is that we need to process our food. So the ideal diet to me, number by on a, on a biological level, is a food that, or a diet that uses technologies to maximize the safety and bioavailability of the food that we're eating, right? Uh, and we'll talk about what those are in just yeah, a second. Yeah, I was going to say, tell me what those are. Okay. I will. But the other thing that is unique to humans is that nourishment is more than just biological, right? It's cultural as well. In order to create and maintain a diet that meets all of our needs and is the healthiest and most sustainable diet for us possible for our lives. It has to meet or exceed both our biological and our cultural uh, expectations, right, and needs. So, and there's a lot to that. And it's, and it's hard to unpack that. And that's different for everybody because, and, and I, I, you know, I teach food, you know, I, I teach it at the college. I do a lot of different classes. It, and as you know, food is incredibly hard. You said some of superficial conversations the other day or earlier. Yeah. We talk about food all day long, but almost all of it is superficial, right? Super um, superficial. And, the reason, yep. and there's very important reasons about it because food is so connected to everything that we are. Right? It's political, it's economic, mm. it's social, it's tradition, it's it's religion, it's all of these things. Oh, so true. To to question somebody's food choices or to advocate for something that is not in line with what they are, it's it seems like a personal attack. And it's very difficult to overcome that. But those are the conversations that we really need to have in, in a respectful way in order to really make change because uh, these superficial ones aren't working. So I, my, my caveat is, you know, whatever the perfect diet is has to include both meeting or exceeding biological and cultural needs and expectations. So with that said, if it's a biological, if it's purely biological, I would have kept bread out of that completely, right? And, and, but, but you know what? I love the smell and the taste of really good bread. I don't eat much of it, but when I do, it's always sourdough. So I would say this, the ideal human diet would be one that includes animals that are harvested and cared of in the, you know, the most respectful and sustainable and ethical way. And we eat literally the entirety of that animal, all of it, from a biological level that makes incredible sense. The plants that we eat, we select carefully, we consume seasonally, and we do everything that we can to process them to make them as safe and nourishing as possible before we eat them. And we combine those two things together, and it's, and it's incredible. But the cultural part of that is important as well, and the connection part of that. So one of the things that's very important about the animals is not just eating nose to tail. That doesn't necessarily mean you go once a week out to the high dollar restaurant and get like foie gras right, or, or pate mm -hmm. or something, right? What that means and is, and it's a huge mission of mine now, and this is just as much nutritional as it is at, for ethical and sustainability reasons, is I am on a mission to put a face back on the plate. Like we find convenience mm. as modern Americans in the, the notion that, we don't have to think about where, I don't want to know where the meat comes from. I just want to buy my T-bone and open it up and grill it. Like, don't tell me about the animal. And that perspective has gotten us into a lot of trouble. It's that perspective that has allowed the modern meat industry, the ones that are not doing the right things, 
to, to do the wrong things with you behind our backs without us even knowing that things that are, that I so wholeheartedly agree with the vegetarian and vegan community that the majority of animals are being completely abused in the meat industry. I, I do, but what I, um, but the way that I answer that is not by turning my back to it and not by not eating animals. It's, by eating animals in the most ethical, sustainable, connected way possible. And when I say put a plate, uh, face back on the plate, what I mean is, you know, everybody in your house, when they sit down to a meal, should know that an animal died to nourish mm. them. It's not something we should be scared of. It's not something we should be afraid of. It's not something we should be ashamed of. It's something that we need to, to look at, understand, respect, have gratitude for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... We need, and it's not hard to do. I mean, and I'm not suggesting that everybody goes out and picks up a bow and, and, and goes hunting. We don't even have enough animals to do that anyhow. What I'm suggesting is, and this is powerful if, if everybody does this, take one step, you know, remove one link from your food chain and take one step closer to that sort of a practice. So in other words, if all you do is buy chicken breast every week for your family, you know what, go and buy the whole chicken. It may seem like it's not a big deal, but so many things come out of that act. One is that your kids, the ones watching TV in the background, look over and actually see something that resembles an animal. They see bones. They see skin. They hear the knife go through the meat and touch the bone. And all those things may sound, oh, God, they need to. They're eating meat. Something did die. We I need to understand. That. So my suggestion is take one step. Here's how, here's how I like to break it down. If you buy chicken breast, go buy a whole chicken. And, you know, buy the best chicken possible, support the people, the farmers and the, and the food uh, yes, producers definitely. that are doing the right thing. And it may seem like it's a huge jump in the amount of money that you're spending, but that chicken breast will feed you for one meal. That whole chicken will feed you for like three. If you, if you use it all and then you make bone broth. Yeah, it again. does. Yeah. So that, that's, and, and it really changes the uh, uh, ratio of, uh, of the money, the whole argument. If you're already buying a whole chicken from the grocery store, then you know what? Go to the farmer's market. Meet the farmer. Bring your kids. They, they, your, your farmer and your kids should know each other's name. Really. That, that's a safe, incredible food system. If you already... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's, that's a quote. That's like a mic drop quote because I feel the same way. We are so disconnected from our food. So I love that idea that your children and the farmer should know each other. You know. Uh, anyways, continue. I love so that. If, if you're already doing that, and what I'm going to suggest may seem crazy, but it's 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 not it's not undo. Get a half a pig, bring it home, put it on your counter, have the entire family around it, and take that pig apart. I've I've been doing a bunch of online. We're we're in the midst of recording a whole bunch of downloadable classes, but I've been doing a whole bunch of live virtual classes through COVID. And one of the most popular ones is, is a butchering class, and I do it. I have a commercial kitchen in the basement, but I do it up in my kitchen, regular kitchen throw a half a pig down, I can get a half a pig, half of a local pig from the local butcher for $135. And that pig will feed my family for a month. And we break it down completely and show how to use every single part of it. And we render the fat and we make the bone broth and we make pork rinds and back fat crack wounds and do all and and, you know, bacon, all of it. There's no blood. And people think there's blood involved. There's no blood. There's no, the, the blood's already out of that animal. If the blood's not out of that animal, the guy, the person that killed that pig did something wrong. So there's no blood. It's no different. It's just bigger than, you know, cutting pork chops. It's just huge. And it's, it's doable. Your entire family's involved. And the best part about it for me is that, you know, an ant, that, that, that looks like an animal. Like the thing, everything you've been trying to avoid for 30, 40 years is the very thing we should be trying to get back to. 
that's the cultural part of eating nose to tail that I think is as important as nutritional. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And I would even add to that the connection when you sit down and eat, when you are around people you love, when you are involved in the process. Hormonally, there is oxytocin that gets released, which helps to regulate insulin. And, you know, we've got all these people on keto diets that are trying to regulate insulin. But that just taking that one cultural part that you just talked about of just being in the process and of of making it and then when you sit and eat be in the in the community of people that you love i mean nobody's going to have a digestive problem with that like you know we we end up with these bloated and people constipated and so much of that is because we're eating in a sympathetic state where we're under stress and everything is con- is is constricted so i i love that idea and i will tell you that i we bought a whole cow many years ago for the first time and I remember eating a hamburger one night and I turned to my husband and I was like, I don't think I've ever in my life eaten meat day after day from the same animal. You might never even ate a hamburger from the same animal before. Like I, and it was like, and, and then we actually gave the animal a name. We called it Bessie and because it was a cow that we bought and it was all done in respect, respect. But I absolutely felt a connection to that experience because every time I pulled meat out of my freezer, it was the same animal. Absolutely. It's it's, so profound. Profound is is a perfect word. Absolutely. Let's go back to the vegetables for a second because you're answering a lot of questions for me of wanting to marry the good that we hear in the carnivore diet with the power that vegetables could have so, and I love ancient grains and fermentation. I, I really have started adopting that. I, I've been gluten-free for years, but I can do really well with sourdough, and it, it, especially if it's an ancient grain. Other than fermentation, what else can we do for these vegetables? Are there some vegetables that you would just completely stay away from? Yeah. So the one, what I'm working on very hard right now, and one of the reasons we're spending a lot of time with different different communities is to understand different processing of, of vegetables, right? Fermentation, I have never found a culture in the world, traditional culture that doesn't use, you know, fermentation isn't, you know, is all, fermentation is always at the center core. And when you look at the real traditional food, not the, you know, Americanized, you know, modern version of these, but the real core of these traditional diets, fermentation always plays a large role. But there's other things as well. So, oh, I'm sorry. There's a lot of different ways Fermentation being the biggest one, cooking. In some cases, vegetables just have to be cooked. Some cases, it's it's drying. Some 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 cases, it's soaking. Some cases, it's sprouting. The one toxin that I haven't found a suitable answer to getting rid of is ox are oxalates. And I know I yeah. mentioned them earlier. Oxalates have been very difficult for me in the past, and and um, I, and I don't know I don't know if you if you've heard of Sally Norton, her work in oxalates. You need, we need to, talk to meet her. her. She she's amazing. Oxalates are are a difficult one, and one of the biggest problems with oxalates is I haven't found a very good way to get rid of a significant amount of them in the food processing. There still may be out there. I'm still looking, but the biggest problem is they build up in your body over time. They're not something that's easily removed. So they're responsible for a ton of joint pain, a ton of GI issues, a ton of, often gout, believe it or not, is misdiagnosed, is really an oxalate issue. And the, the diet they tell you to go on for, unless they test you for uric acid, right? 
think the diet they tell you is, you know, get away from meat and start eating more vegetables and it's vegetables that are actually doing, doing the damage. So uh, tons of different issues. The oxalates under a microscope look like little tiny shards of glass and your body grabs them and sequesters them and puts them in different areas, often in joints, in your corneas, in your feet, in your fingers, in your digits, um, can cause all sorts of problems. So the biggest offenders of this are things like spinach, Swiss chard, kale, rhubarb, beets, almonds. Those, uh, even potatoes have a, have a decent amount in them. And, and so, again, most of those foods are things we don't question. Oh, my God, we know that spinach is, say, is, is great for us. Why? Because a cartoon in the 1960s told us? Like, so interesting. Different. Yeah, Popeye. Popeye, absolutely. <laughs> this, is, this is what I was referring to earlier when I said, you know what? Spinach by itself isn't necessarily dangerous. And unless you are predisposed to oxalates and have a high load of them, if you ate spinach when spinach was in season, you might never know that it was an issue. It may, it may never become an issue, really, is a better way to say it. But if you start with that mindset, some is good is more, and more is better, and you shut your brain off and you're eating a spinach shake every day for you know, three months later, you're going to have some real problems. You know, I'm convinced of, of, of two things. One is that, I mentioned earlier, the idea that we are predisposed to understanding what real food really is. I mean, real food should make us feel good. Like yes. Real, that's, it should make us feel good. We can, it, it is possible to lose weight and not starve yourself. You, it is possible to lose weight and not feel hungry, right? Yes. Is, uh, so every time we should think about food as nourishing us. I know that sounds strange. Most of us don't think of it that way. Food is nourishing to us and it should nourish us both biologically and culturally, emotionally, all of it. And every single, you know, one of our goals, one of our missions should be that every time we get up from the table, we should feel better than when we sat down to it. I mean, that was the whole point after all, right? You should get up and not feel hungry. You should also get up and not have to loosen your belt loop three, you know, by three holes either. You should feel amazing. If you are eating the right foods and are processing them the right way and it's the right time of the day and all that, that's exactly, exactly how it should be. There was another thing I was going to say, but I forgot. So oxalates are, are a, a big problem and they build up, build up over time and I haven't found a great way to get rid of them. So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. 
So that's drmindy.org. And you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. You asked about another form of food processing that is for plants that's incredibly important. And that's, so there's a lot of things. I was in Bolivia and Peru last summer living with two communities, an ancient in Bolivia with an Aymara family, which is the native family up in the um, Altipano region. And down in the Andes in uh, Peru, I was with a Quechua family, solely focused on understanding how they deal with potatoes. Because potatoes are incredibly toxic. Potatoes are really, really toxic, even russet potatoes. But the heritage varieties of potatoes that are still grown in parts of South America are really, really toxic. In fact, the wild ancestors poisonous, like will kill you poisonous. A lot of the early varieties of potatoes kill you poisonous. And a lot of these are still grown, harvested, and consumed in these communities that have higher levels of the same toxins that the potatoes in our grocery stores have. So I wanted to say, see, you know, what are they doing with these incredibly toxic versions of potatoes? And maybe we can translate some of that into our, into our lives here with the ones that we have access to because we eat so many potatoes. And in Bolivia, there's two things that they did. They made something called chuno, chuno blanco and chuno negro, where they would take and put the potatoes in the river for months and it would leach a lot of the toxins out. It would do a little bit of fermentation and then it would go through a freeze drying process spread out, you know, on the Altiplano. But the reason I was with this particular group is because they're one of two groups left in the world that practice geophagy. Now, geophagy is the intentional consumption of earth, typically clay. Mm. And humans have been doing this forever for several reasons. One reason is because there's minerals that you can get from soil and from clays, which is good. We do yeah. it when in, in areas of famine. We quite see it happen quite often because it's just something to fill our stomach, right? But the other reason is because many, many animals do this. It's an easy way, easy way. It's a, it's a really um, powerful way to detoxify certain plants. So there's things in some clays that will bind with certain toxins. And when they're bound together, our body doesn't recognize it and it'll pass through our body. Wow. And at the same time, we can get the nutrition from the food. And this is something that they do. It's called PASA. They do it with potatoes. And the crazy thing is that for all the time I spent in Bolivia and Peru, and I mean, I lived in Ireland for a year and they don't eat anywhere near as many potatoes as these families eat. I mean, some of these people were eating 10 potatoes a day, 12 potatoes a day. And they prepared them in a lot of different ways, all different toxic levels of the, of the potatoes when they started. Sometimes the, the, the potatoes that they had were very similar to the ones that we have, and they were just boiling them and doing other things. But so they, so they prepared them in a lot of different ways. But across the board, except for one time, they always peeled them, always peeled them. Interesting. And the reason they peeled them was because we think about the role of the toxins. The toxins are there to protect the plant. And of course, it would be on the skin. So many of the toxins are in the skin. And when I say they peeled every potato, this isn't like you think, I mean, I know everybody has their image. They picked up a russet potato and you have your vegetable peeler and you peel it and 10 seconds later, you're done. You move on to the next one. The, the heritage heirloom varieties of potatoes they had look like like this right they yeah, weren't really they yeah. so to peel that potato was a huge act that took you know 12 15 times as much time as it does so 
it was very important to them to do this. They always peeled it except for when we ate it with the clay because it was such a powerful detoxifier that they didn't need to do that. So then in, in Peru, they make something called tokash, which is, again, they take these incredibly toxic potatoes. They dig a pit in the ground. They fill it, I mean, with kilos and a huge amount of potatoes, fill it with water, and they let it sit for a minimum of six months. The stuff that I ate was two years in the ground. Oh, my gosh. And they make this traditional dish out of it, and, and that's how they eat it. But they don't just eat potatoes, right? They always peel them and quite often go through this extensive processing to render them safe and render them nourishing before they actually eat them. So that's another example. But one, so, one more I wanted to... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. So could we peel them in our own home then? Would that, would that make it one less step of toxicity? Yep. So there's certain things that I would always say is you must do this all the time. And we do it in our house all the time. I have not eaten a potato skin since I got back. Period. Uh, I always peel the potatoes. Does that go for sweet potatoes too? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's my favorite part of a sweet potato. I know. <laughs> and, and, we're, and we're taught that. And me too. You know, when I was a kid, what I loved is I'd eat them. I couldn't wait to get rid of the middle. And I'd stick two big pats of butter on the inside and sweet and pick it up and eat it like a, like a pita or a taco. Yeah. So always peel it. There's other things. Ferment them. You, you ferment the potatoes. Yeah, ferment them. What about like, I was thinking activated charcoal. Could you take activated charcoal after you eat a potato? I'm sure it would make a difference. Charcoal plays a very large role in ancestral diets and, and traditional diets around the world. My daughter started a sourdough bread company called Rise by Brand. It's, it's, it's doing very, really, really well. She started it during COVID. And one of the first things she was selling was a sourdough cracker with charcoal, a sourdough charcoal cracker. Oh man, everybody loved it. And then we found out that it's illegal. The F, it's, uh, so the FDA- Oh yeah, it's like raw milk. Yeah. So it, charcoal, can, it, it is illegal to use charcoal as an ingredient in food. You can use it for a processing step. So like an uh, ash-ripened cheese, which isn't charcoal. It is charcoal, what you really say, it's ash. So it's because it changes the pH of the outside of the cheese as it, as it ages. So for a processing step, you can use charcoal, but you're not allowed to use it as an ingredient. Well, not yet. I'm, I'm fighting. Yeah, charcoal is incredibly Interesting. Important. Well, does she ship her stuff, her crackers? She will be shipping all of her food, hopefully within the next month. Put a link or we'll invite our resetters to get her stuff because we are always on the search for something, for good food that lines up with our health values. Well, so. listen, let me, that's a, this is, let me tell you what we're working on now because I just signed a book contract, uh, hopefully the pre-orders in March awesome. with Little Brown, which I'm really excited about. Okay. It's called Eat Like a Human. So that'll hopefully be out very soon. We're doing a lot of work trying to, you know, think obviously podcasts and our blog, uh, but also all sorts of, of cooking classes person, in person and, and virtual. But the thing that we've had a lot of call for, people take our classes and listen, awesome. I get it. I understand why this is important. I did it. It worked great. It tasted wonderful, but I don't have the time to do this every day. I don't have the time or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah. one of the things we've gotten calls for is, can, is there a way to get some of this food? And mm. what's important to us and where I think we can make the biggest impact, and I think we're, the listeners in general, the way you make the biggest impact in your diet is not to change you know, the thing you do once a week or to change your Thanksgiving meal and make it amazing. It's by changing the things you eat every day, right? And the things you eat all the time or several times a week or whatever. So even though I'm not a big bread eater, there are just some people that are always going to eat bread. And that's fine. But if you're going to do it, it should be sourdough bread. And, and just, just changing it. If you're not going to take bread out of your diet, 
by changing it to a real sourdough bread and, and you're eating that bread every day, the results are amazing. If yeah. you're eating vegetables the right way, if you're doing all this. So um, what we've started to work on, and we hopefully will be launching this in the next couple months, definitely before the holidays, is we are producing some of these. We, we want to replace the foods that people are eating every day with their, mo- their safest and most nourishing forms possible. So we have, we've, and, and it's all based on the work we've done around the world. So for example, if you're going to eat potato chips, we have a version of a potato chip that has been fermented the way it's been, we, we, we were learning in South America. It's been fermented. It's fried in high quality animal fat. And it's something that I'm proud to feed my family. Uh, we have, I love that. So, so we have a whole line of things that we're hopefully launching very, very soon. And I'll give you all that information as yeah, well. Please send it because our resetters will ask and they, they definitely are going to want it. Okay, let's finish up with this. I, this has been fascinating, by the way, for me, because you've answered a lot of questions that I've been asking and trying to figure out how to marry a lot of really good principles like fermentation and carnivore. And where does this all come together? So th- for me, this has been like, like you took my thinking to a whole nother level. So thank well, you. That's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. But I want to finish up with five questions for you. Um, just rapid fire questions. You're the tool guy. Okay, so you're you're. We're gonna say you lived in a cave. You're back in the caveman days. <laughs> Would you have been in a cave? I would have. I've lived in a cave, but you've lived in a cave. Okay, so if there was one tool you could have or make back in in a cave, or you're out in the wilderness, what would that be? One tool I make a, a, a knife. Yeah, a stone knife. A knife. Period. And that was the first tool we ever we ever created as well. Definitely a knife. Okay. And do, I, I meant to ask you this. There's a lot of thought that our brains grew once we were able to make knives out of stone. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, if you the, the process of making stone tools is incredibly complex and at minimum three-dimensional. I mean, I, I, I equate it to you know, doing a Rubik's Cube, make, trying to fix a Rubik's Cube where you do something to one side and it impacts the other side. And you have to think you know, the production of stone tool technology requires us to think outside of the box and think abstractly and plan steps ahead when it really becomes definitely by 2 million years ago. What we were doing three and a half million years ago is very, very basic. But at 2 million years ago, you had to think three-dimensionally, plan steps ahead. You had to go to get specific types of rocks in different places. I'm convinced that, that for, you know, it's very funny because when I did that one show in, in, in uh, Ireland that I was talking about, the host asked me, he's like, yeah, well, I get the food thing, but it's, it can't just be food. I'm like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. He says, well, if you fed a chimpanzee the most high-quality nutritious diet possible, what would you get? And I said, well, you get a fat chimpanzee. I mean, or, or you eat too much food. So right? it, it wasn't just the food. Like the food supported the brain growth, but the food didn't, you know, the, the changing in more nutritional diets didn't create it. Something was pushing mm. our brains to get bigger, and it just so happened that we were actually um, fortifying our diets and making our diets better and better and better that could support that brain growth. So it's it's very interesting you say that. I'm convinced that at least one of those things was stone tool technology. Sure. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. We didn't even talk about the the great human race you were in, but in that you went back and you lived like an ancestor, like how our ancestors lived. What was the craziest experience that you had in that show? All right. That's a great question. So we started, that show started at two and a half million years ago in Tanzania, right? And we went through from Tanzania up through Africa, through the Middle East, across Asia and ended in Oregon. And there were 10 different stops, different time periods. And 
you know, it was my job to replicate the technologies in that time period. And me and Kat lived using one of those technologies, right? So it was, you know, what you saw is what was happening. But at the same time, it was also set because we knew what technologies we had. Those are the ones I had to live with. So I knew what technologies I was going to have. And in my mind, I knew the most important things that we had to depict about what was happening at that time period through those technologies. So for example, in the first episode of two and a half million years ago, we were fully bipedal. Like we were, our ancestors were walking on two legs. However, we didn't have fire yet so that we weren't living on the ground for 24 hours a day. We're actually sleeping in trees because we couldn't protect ourselves at night. So we were sleeping in, we were sleeping in Bayabat trees there. But that leads me to the answer to your question. The second episode, we were in Uganda. It was two million years ago. Uh, we had fire technology at that time. And one of the things we were, you know, we could now do, right, is just like our ancestors did, is come out of the trees all day long and stay on the ground. Well, there was this one night, we're in the middle of, of Uganda, and we had spent the day using a two million year old, replicas of a two million year old hand axe, cutting acacia thorns to make this huge fence around us, just laid there, right? And we had a huge fire in the middle, and we're out there in the middle of nowhere, and the hyenas started coming in. Right, one okay. after another. And what hyenas do is, you know, one hyena, it's not that big of a deal. If you're sleeping, I understand if you're sleeping on the ground by yourself, a hyena will eat your face off. But if, other than that, like if you're awake or if there are people around, one hyena is not a big deal. But as they grow in number and they're calling to one another, they get braver and braver and braver. And supposedly when they hit the low teens, like, you know, 12, 13 in number, a female, and they do all this by different ways of, of communicating with one another, a female takes charge. And when that happens and they realize they have at least those numbers, then they are completely fearless and like they are unstoppable. So we're in the middle of nowhere, lit by the, lit by the stars. I can see in the shadows of this fire, hyenas around us and they're calling. It's an eerie recall. I'm losing my mind. Like, I'm like, listen, I am in my 40s, I have a family back home. Oh, no. I have a TV show. Like, what am I doing? And then all of a sudden, the hyenas take off. And I'm like, where'd they go? And I look up in the distance, and there's a moon, so you can see there's a male lion. It just appeared in the distance. like, And it looked like, you know, Lion King, you know, huge, whatever it's called around. And I'm like, oh, my God. It just got worse. It had scared off the hyenas. It took a couple steps. It was in the distance. And then it just turned and, and, and walked away as well. And I was done. Like That, that was the was, most scared you've ever been, huh? I'm still scared. But they, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Of all the countries you've been to, what do you feel, which country do you feel like has the best diet and is mimicking the concepts that you're teaching here the best? See, you know, most people start that question and say, what's your favorite country? And it was, it was going to be Mongolia. So I, I know we're running out of time, so I'll do a quick version of this. Everywhere I've been, I've learned something from the people that I've, my family and I have been with. Uh, there's, and there's no doubt. In, in most cases, I've gone to a particular group or place because there was something particular that they were doing that I wanted to learn. But unfortunately, a lot of modern Western food has also made it into their diets as well. So, you know, for example, when I went to Bolivia, you know, I was there to learn about these potatoes, but there's Fanta and, you know, Mm -hmm. even as remote as we were, like some of that gets in there, but I'll say 
there's not much detoxifying of plants in this in this community because they don't hardly eat any plants. I went, my family and I both went to northern Kenya to be with the Samburu warriors. You know what they do in the Maasai? No. So no. the Samburu warriors and the Maasai both are nomadic pastoralists. So they keep animals, uh, semi, semi-nomadic. And during the, the dry season, the, the, pla- the plants are so tough that the animals are eating that it's hard for them to get enough nutrition. They have to eat massive amounts of plants, right? So the, the men and the boys leave for half the year and just follow their animals and just let them go. And they just walk mm. after them and come back six months, you know, half a year later because they have to, they, they need so much area to eat in order to survive. Well, their diets are almost entirely animal-based, but they don't eat their animals. They rarely eat their animals. What they do is they drink twice a day a combination of milk and blood, raw milk and blood. Interesting. Uh, so, so, let's, so I know we're out of time. Let me just give you the quick lead up to this. So we spent days traveling to them and we were camping in the bush and driving these dirt roads and ended up becoming paths. And, you know, this last day we had driven and driven and driven and finally got to the edge of a wadi, a dry riverbed. And it was the end, literally the end of the road. It wasn't even a road, but whatever it was. We go down into the wadi and we drive up the dry riverbed for an, an hour. And we come to where this village is. And there were three young Samburu warriors standing at the edge of the, of the river or what was the river. And I remember it looked like somebody painted the scene because, first of all, it was backlit very well. But they're standing there in traditional clothes. And they were probably in their late teens. And I remember looking at them thinking to myself, this is the ideal human figure. Like they are mm. perfect. And then when I got even the way that they stood, their their frame, their shape, all of it. And then when I got closer, I remember seeing their eyes and their teeth, and just like, oh my god! Like it's, they have the whitest whites of their eyes I've ever seen. Their teeth are gorgeous and, and broad faces, beautiful, smiling year to year. Like we've made it. Let's go! So we walk to their village. They lead us into their village, and they take a cow one of their cows and they bring the cow over and the cow did, I mean, it did what a cow would do. It struggled a little bit because somebody was grabbing it, but it's the only time the cow struggled. So they brought this cow over and they tied a rope around its neck and they cinched it a a little snug, kind of like if you were giving blood with the rubber band would be on your arm. And then somebody comes out with this little, it looked like a little toy bow and arrow. It was so little. And they pull it back and shot this tiny little arrow into its jugular, which was at this point huge because it had the rope on it. Mm. And it went in and bounced out. It only went in about a quarter inch. And somebody grabbed a gourd, filled the gourd with the blood. It came literally spurting out of its neck, grabbed about maybe a liter. Then they took the rope off of its neck. They went to the ground and picked up some dirt and threw it into the wound. And the bleeding stopped and it walked away. Just like when you gave blood. And they view the blood... Like we view milk, it's a replenishable resource, right? So they took the blood and then they grabbed a stick from the ground, started to stir the blood until coagulated on the stick. And they took that out and they fed it to a dog. And then they went to another cow and they milked it. So there's this fresh, warm milk and this fresh, warm blood. And in about 50-50 percentage, they went back and forth with it and started passing it around. Oh my gosh. And I will tell you, if I stuck it on a table in somebody's kitchen today, nobody would drink it. I was going to say, how did it taste? Let me tell you what, it, I, I have no words. It was amazing. It truly, it, it tasted like a irony, salty chocolate milkshake. And I know that sounds strange, but that's exactly what it tasted like. The warm, warm chocolate milkshake. 
but what was fascinating, now some of this might have been in my head because I was predisposed to think this way, so I will, I will give it that. I felt like I just drank something. I mean, something of worth. Like mm, satiation, that. like that, that satiation is not powerful enough of a word for how I felt after, after I drank it. And just amazing. So when the boys and the men leave, they literally, that's all they eat for six months. Twice a day, that's literally all they mm-hmm. eat. Back in the village, they have, you know, they, they include some other things in their diets, but that's the mainstay. And if you're sick or if you're pregnant or if you're lactating, you get extra doses of it. And what I, I bring this up because, you know, we have all these, we've spent now an hour and a half or a little longer, I'm sorry, talking about no, ideal diets. We have all these conversations and there's people with all sorts of PhDs and all sorts of things having these conversations about, you know, how do we feed the planet? What should we be eating? What's the healthiest diet? I literally was with what I, who I believe to be the healthiest people I've ever seen in my life. And I don't say that lightly. I've been around a lot of people and healthiest people in my life. They, they literally survive and subsist and thrive on two foods that one of is illegal in Maryland and the other is almost impossible to get. Like they're not even considered food and it's mind blowing. And I'm not necessarily suggesting everybody drink raw milk and blood, but I am suggesting that the real honest to goodness answers to ideal human diets, sustainable diets, ethical diets, all of it, we haven't even scratched the surface. We're not even close. Oh, I love that. I love that. Okay, I got two more questions okay, for you. But I appreciate all the time you've given me. Okay, we got a lot of parents listening. So I think you kind of answered this, but if there was something we could teach our kids about ancestral living and ancestral diets, what would what would it be? Like what are some and you talked about the kill on the countertop. I love that. What else can we teach our kids about how we can really eat food and honor food that supports our health? Well, I think, I think it's all, I know it's all about connection. So if you're a family that eats meat, I highly recommend doing all the things that I mentioned earlier. If you're a family that doesn't eat meat, there are other ways to get that connection, right? So foraging has been a part of my life since I was 10 years old. I've been foraging for 37 years and I don't care. And it has been so incredibly powerful in my in my quest to connect with where my food comes from and understand you know human environmental relationships, understand things about seasonality, understand things about detoxifying foods. Nobody has an excuse not to do this. It is absolutely free. There are ways to do it that are incredibly safe and nourishing. And you can do it everywhere that you are. I give I give a foraging, not because of COVID this year, but every year I give a foraging tour in the middle of DC. And we forage right through the middle of DC and at the Capitol. I forage in the middle of Moscow. I've given foraging tours in Dublin. You don't have to be in the middle of the woods to forage. In fact, there's more of a diversity of plants at the edge of a road or at the edge of a field than there are in the middle of the woods. Crazy. Yeah, you have a great video on your webpage about that. Like you show you going out and getting weeds in your neighborhood. Oh, that yeah, was, yeah I, lo- I love that. I love that. Okay, my last, my last question you had one message for the world that you could get implanted in everybody's brain and hearts, what would it be? I would say that, that the secret to health lies in learning what it truly means to be human. So in terms of, and, and, and that should be a quest that we're all after. And, and I, I say that because you, if you were to say about food, I would have said, 
you know, we need to eat like a human again. And what that means is making sure we're paying attention to connection and, and where food comes from. And, and most importantly, the processing of the food to make it safe and nourishing. But if it's, you asked it in a broader sense. So to nourish your body and your soul, I think we truly have to understand what it means to be human. And in order to understand what it means to be human, we have to ha- have that foundation. We have to understand what our what our past was like. And I don't mean George Washington past. I don't mean great grandma past. I mean, what was it like millions of years ago? What was it like hundreds of thousands of years ago? Humans, we as biologically, anatomically correct, anatomically modern humans first appeared 300,000 years ago. People that looked just like us with the same brain size, the same body structure appeared 300,000 years ago. The the history that we're taught in school doesn't scratch the surface. It's important, no doubt, but there's a huge piece missing. So understanding what our past was like, understanding what our present is like, and understanding what our future can be like is incredibly important. Oh my God, I love that. You know, I again, this is something I've been saying to my community forever is that we have upgraded everything in our life from you know, going from this place where we didn't even have tools to now being able to talk to each other on phones. The only thing that hasn't upgraded or changed as dramatically is our human body. Now, you gave me another level on that of where we our digestive system has, but if you stop and you think about it, we that you're living pretty much in the same body that you're your ancestors years and years and 300,000 years ago did, but yet you're treating it totally different. Yes. And, and that disconnect is where I think disease and suffering is happening. And your, this has just been incredible. So you, I, I'm not, I hope our resetters love this. I think they will. But for me, this was incredible. And I just am so grateful for you taking as much time well, as you did to walk through this with me. It, unbelievable. So thank you so much, Bill. And we'll, Thank you for the opportunity. Really. Uh, incredible. And we'll get all your resources out, your cooking class and all that. And when your book comes out, we want to bring you back on and have you teach us about what, what you're teaching in there. So. Thank well, you. Keep spreading such great messages. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Oh, it was incredible. So thank you. Jess, what do you want to say? Pretty neat, huh? Oh, I could pick your brain. I just want to pick your brain about all your traveling experiences. If you ever go anywhere again and need extra hands, <laughs> oh, I'm on. Because, COVID has thrown oh, a huge wrench I, into our travel. Yes, history. I bet. I I'm, bet. Yeah. yeah, you're telling Are us. Are you both in California? So we feel the same way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but we, you know, we've gone from, I've gone from a place where my practice was very much like a brick and mortar practice and we've pretty much gone all virtual now. We have, you know, we definitely travel is in our, in our future and to be able to have the freedom to do that. But you take the vision of traveling to a whole, to a whole nother level. This doesn't look like looking, this isn't like going and drinking wine in Sorrento, Italy. This is... Uh, we like doing that too. Don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> <laughs> it's a little combination of both. If there's anything, if, if you're ever going anywhere and somewhere that I've been, I'd be happy to share contacts and resources. So just let me know. Awesome. Awesome. Oh, you just opened up a yeah. floodgate. I'll be your best friend via yeah. email. Well, we and will be um, this next summer, assuming this all clears, we're running at least one trip, maybe three, to Ireland, Ireland is magnificent. Butter, we didn't get a chance to talk about dairy at all, but butter originated in Ireland about 6,000 years ago and got spread by the Vikings. And the butter they're eating is nothing like the butter we're eating today. 
dairy is very important. So we were going to do a food tour, of, uh, an ancient food tour of Ireland. Um, I would love I'm that. Yes. We're going to do probably something in southern Italy, start at the Italian Culinary Institute and go down to Sicily and end up oh. working with some cheesemakers up in the mountains of Sicily. And then either either Oaxaca uh, or Kenya. Oh. Something. I, I'm yes. there. Please keep us. Please keep us informed. I'm not even yeah. kidding. Oh. I'd buy. I'd buy my ticket yeah. today. If I, I know. Well, actually, it's a great time to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You did mention fermented butter. Yeah. What is so butter? Where do you find well, that? You can't. And I'm fighting with the FDA about this right now. I'm. I am allowed to make it and do it. The, the quick answer is you make it, but I'm allowed to make it and sell it on the premises. I'm not allowed to ship it yet. So this the way butter was made in the past is that you're a farmer, you have one or two cows, you milk the cows, you get some milk, you let you sit on the you know, side of the room, and it comes out fermenting, right, because it's raw. And then the, over a couple hours, right, half a day, it separates, you skim the fat off, but you don't make butter out of it because you only have like this much, right? Butter making is a laborious process. You put it in a container and you do other things with the milk, and tomorrow you do the next thing and the next thing. At the end of the week, you finally have enough cream to make butter. But it's been fermenting for seven, eight, nine, ten days this entire time. And then you churn the butter, and then you end up with live butter, fermented butter, and you end up with live, real buttermilk as as the byproduct. Both of those things are two different foods than the butter that we buy at the grocery store. In health, in flavor, in storability, in, in all of it. And it's, again, that's how butter... So I did a thing when we were in Ireland. I was with a guy, Jason O'Brien. We did an event. Uh, we were living on a farm. It's the only farm in a city in anywhere in Europe. And it was a working farm we were living on in, mm-hmm. in Dublin. We did a huge event there and it was a bread and butter event. He brought all of his bread and I brought a bunch of different types of fermented butter. And it was, it was cool for me because first of all, Ireland's known for great butter anyhow, but here I am making butter the way butter was made in Ireland 6,000 years ago when I get Amazing. to talk about it and present it. So all these, I mean, old people came in and I mean really old and I'd see these women and they have a little of the butter and they taste it they pause for a minute and they look up at me with this look and they say I haven't had butter like this since my grandmother and these people were already like 90 years old anyhow since my grandmother made it like that is so very that's cool. awesome yeah. oh my gosh that's sign amazing. us up for those trips we All want right. to know about those yeah All yeah right. that's amazing them together very very soon so yeah. thank you so much oh thank you Nothing that I love to talk about more than wine. So I got to tell you about Dry Farm Wines, which is my absolute favorite place to get wine from for many different reasons. One, they're keto friendly. You didn't hear that wrong. They're literally keto friendly. They have no added sugars, no added toxins, and they will leave you feeling amazing the next morning. So go check out their website. Not only is the wine incredible, but the people behind the wine are amazing. You guys know how I love people who are on a mission to serve the world. Well, Todd White and his crew are on a mission to help people drink healthy wines and enjoy the whole experience. So they taste amazing. And if you go to dryfarmwines.com backslash Dr. Mindy Pels, they will actually send you a bottle for a penny. So give it a try. Let me know what you think. And cheers to an incredible wine experience.
Okay, Resetters, um, this is one of those podcast moments that I wish you all were in a room with me and that you could give me your feedback on what you just heard. I have, I often say I have no words, but in this particular episode, I probably could have continued to talk to that man for like two more hours. How about you, Jess? Yeah, all day. I I feel like too... I want to say this has been my favorite episode. We go back to this every time. This is my favorite episode so far. But I do. I want to sit at his dinner table with his fermented sourdough and fermented butter, have long, deep conversations. And listen to his stories. Yeah. I just, his stories, like, I, it's funny if you, if you guys are listening to the podcast on a regular basis, you know, I, there are times that I'm got so many questions. I just start inserting, you know, the questions as we go along. And then there are times that I sit back in awe and I just listen. And I, I could see that he had a place he was taking us all to and his explanation and his stories. And so I just rarely interrupted him because he was he so interesting to listen to. Yeah. I so loved it. So loved it. And for me, I feel like, and I said it in the podcast that I've really struggled trying to just understand that the human body is meant to only eat meat. I mean, I was 30 years ago a vegetarian for a decade most of my 20s as a vegetarian and I was for ethical reasons and so I can hear Paul Saladino and I can listen to his him talk and the 600 different studies that that he he quotes and yet in my heart I feel like I don't think we're meant to eat one way and that's the only one food like that and that's all we're meant to eat I really feel like carnivore is used for as a healing diet and you would use it to help reset your gastrointestinal system and bring inflammation down. I can see where it would help with autoimmunity, but I've struggled to feel like that was the only food we were supposed to eat. And I felt like in this, what, what Dr. Schindler did is give us a bigger perspective on that story. Mm-hmm. Well, and he, he kind of went back into one of the things that we talk about all the time, which is feast, famine, diet variation, cycling, eating seasonally. And I think that would go back to saying, same with meat too. Like there's not all seasons where you can find animals because they're hibernating. So what did you eat during those times? More fat, maybe more seeds, more nuts, things that you had stored. Yeah. I think it all goes back to this feast, famine, seasonally cycling concept that we've been talking about for a while. Yeah, and I in the research that I've done on the microbiome and firmicutes and bacteroides, that was also I should have we got to bring them back. <laughs> I think we'll bring it back like every every couple months. <laughs> I feel like we need to bring them back. And I know we talked about getting him to come do a cooking class for our academy members because I can't wait to see how he makes all this stuff. But when you study the firmicutes and bacteroides ratio, which if you guys are not familiar with that, that when firmicutes are too high and bacteroides are too low, then you store calories more from the foods you're eating. So every people who've done our gut zoomer, people in our academy, I've been really educating people on this ratio needs to flip for you to start to maintain the weight that you want and to lose weight. Well, when I did research on how do you flip that ratio, when I did research, and a piece of that has to do with raising bacteroides, the two main foods that raise bacteroides are collagen and sauerkraut. 
And so I actually, in like studying that and then talking to Paul Saladino, our meals literally at night now have been a bowl of sauerkraut with uh, some type of meat on them. Mm -hmm. And then it just, he just confirmed, and I've been feeling so great with it. He just confirmed that that is how the human body's meant to eat. Yes. Do you make your own sauerkraut? Have you ever made your own sauerkraut? I I haven't, but that's out of laziness. (laughs) I'm not intimidated. And we're about, as we're doing this recording, we're about to head into Labor Day weekend. And I was was listening to him. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to task myself with both making sourdough bread and making sauerkraut this weekend. Because it's just, I just need to jump in. I have a, a patient brought me one of those clay sauerkraut like containers. Oh, it's a, you put that you just cut up the cabbage and the salt in the water. You put a li- this kind of lid on it, and I have that. So I don't know why I haven't made. Yeah, it. you're gonna need to take a picture of it and post I will. it to your social media during the weekend so we can follow you. Yeah, I will. So I so I I just feel like it answered a lot of things for me on how to combine all these theories together. I don't know if you felt that way. Yeah, I felt that way. And then I think he touched on a lot of questions that we get from our resetter community on, you know, cost and going back to the, is it ethical? I think one of the things that I love that he said was in terms of things that you are eating on a regular basis or you're drinking on a regular basis, like make lateral changes on those Mm -hmm. items. And it's funny because, you know, I just went, I just went home for the weekend and my Kamado Islands coffee is, you know, what, $50 I pay for two two pound bags. And as I was sitting there chatting with with some people and they were talking about how outrageous the cost of some of these coffees are, like why wouldn't we just go with Folgers? And I think, yeah, but you're if you're like me, you're drinking that every day. Every day that's going into your body. And that's the pretty much besides water, the only thing I've had today. So of course, why wouldn't I invest in making sure that my coffee, something that I have as a staple every day, is of the highest quality. Yep. And that was one of the things I think I really liked about what he pointed out was if you're somebody that's eating bread and doesn't want to give it up, make sure it's sourdough, it's with mm-hmm. ancient grains. Like, So I, I thought that was a really good concept that I hope people took away or from yeah, this podcast episode. I, I would agree. And I think we've noticed this across the bo- uh, board in our clinic with our resetters is that when you go high quality food, you go high quality supplement you don't like, especially with supplements, you don't have to take them as often. You don't have to take them as much high quality food. You fill up faster. Your fasting lifestyle works a lot better because you're fat. I mean, I think most of our resetters, I know I feel this way. I know you feel this way. Your hunger stops Mm -hmm. like the, the processed American food is really contributing to the overconsumption of food. Yeah. But you're un- I've heard this before that we're we're overconsuming and we're undernourished. Yep. yep. And when you hear him talk and you think about killing an animal and eating nose to tail and you think about fermenting your vegetables you start to, and you think about the time that goes into that and the art of it. And then the, I loved that piece that he talked about, like connecting to your food and saying, and being grateful for it. You realize how we've just been doing it all wrong. Yeah. I, I loved that part. And I wanted to interject because, well, you and I have already talked, but I just spent the whole weekend. My dad has four cows. We had a, there was a baby cow there. And one of the things that we talked about was just the connection that you make with the animals. So I was sitting there loving the baby and getting it to know me and feeling comfortable so that, you know, when it has its own babies, it's comfortable with us. And just the process of 
you know, I, th- I think not that one, but one of the other cows is going to be slaughtered next year and they will use head to toe of ev- everything. Mm. And I think about like, just the amount of gratitude I already feel knowing that like we've loved this Mm. animal and we've nurtured this animal and it will supply enough meat for my entire family and extended family for a whole year. Oh my God. I just got, I just got chills. Like that has to be, it's really cool. And the chickens, like they've got chickens and you know, it will, until they are done laying eggs and we take the chicken and we use, and they do, I see the bones that are in the freezer for bone broth and like that's something I very much appreciate about uh, that I haven't gotten to experience in a long time because I don't have cows of my own in my backyard, but just about how how neat it is. And I think there's an energy that goes into it too when you you can love your animals or you can love whatever it is that you're growing, your plants, your vegetables, and how that will come back in terms of in this energetic way of nourishing you. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that's so. That's really neat. I, 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 I can't even imagine what it would be like to love on an animal for a long time, knowing right. you're going to kill it and then honoring I, it that it's right. going to feed you. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I could, you know, my, my stepmom, Tisha, she was like, I won't be able to be around for when we have, yeah. sirloin is the cow that will probably be, <laughs> that will be used next year. And she's like, I won't be able to be around it, but I can still have gratitude for what. Yeah. Yeah. The, the presence that it's had and that it will nourish me and my entire family for time to come. So maybe you need to drink its blood. Like, <laughs> oh, so I am, I am so ready to, if my really? dad, I, well, no, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm ready to try it, but I'm so excited to call my dad and ask him about this if he's ever tried it. Cause he used to work on a dairy farm and they used to do raw milk back before, you know, everything was, you know, laws around everything. And I'm just curious, like if he's ever heard or tried, or I don't know, like somebody else has had Let's to do tried it, it Let's somewhere. Field, field trip to your dad's place. Yes. <laughs> we just have to figure out that little bow and arrow he t- or talked about to get right. in. I bet he could help us construct one since he's a tool advocate. And we know how to get raw milk. Well, you would get milk from the cow. Right. I think we make a field trip to dad's place. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I'd love it. Well, and if you think about it, like you talked about their teeth and uh, and of course it's strong. I mean, they're eating so many probiotic enriched, like nothing has been processed of those foods. And here in America, and I heard him talk about how our teeth are getting smaller. And you think about all the dental work that people are having over here. We're eating processed stuff all the time. We're using Colgate mouthwash and toothpaste to kill our bacteria our ancestors did not have mouthwash and toothpaste. Yeah, no, that part was interesting. And the duck story about the fermentation, that was fascinating. It, I'm sure you thought of the mouth the same way I did. Like right away, I was like, oh my gosh, we have been talking about the microbiome of the mouth for a long time. So that was really interesting. And it makes sense that, you know, it's like milk. One of the challenges with pasteurized milk is that it has been, it, it's been heated up so much that there's no enzymes there's no probiotics in it. So you don't have anything to help you break the lactose down. Right. Well, in uh, in bread, you have that same issue that there's no enzymes in there to help you break it down. And then on top of that, it's been heavily sprayed with things like glyphosate. So if you ferment it at home, what you're doing is you're creating the enzymes. Yeah. So I really like that idea. I think I might start making some fermented bread. Well, you have to share. But yes, I will. I'm I'm in full agreement of you making yeah. fermented bread. <laughs> if if you if you share the milk blood combo, the milk from blood. The- 
Can you imagine what people would say? Oh my gosh. The other one that I'm blown away that the concept that I'm like really trying to understand is this oxalate situation. And where I had gotten with the carnivore, what I'm seeing in so many people is I really feel like with carnivore, it is an elimination. It's it's a reset to the gut that's really helpful for a lot of people because so many people are just reacting to every food they're eating. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if you eat a food high in oxalates and you're getting bloated or you're reacting or it doesn't feel good, that it could also mean there's more gut dysbiosis, that there's that you need to really work on, on taking care of your gut. So when I heard him talk about it, I was like, okay, well, how can we make some modifications? Like we can ferment cabbage. That's great. I like the idea of taking bind with your potato. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and a good idea. I'd love to see his potato chips that he's coming up with. Yeah, I would too. I can't wait to try them. That would be amazing. I'm not sure I'm going to go. I kept thinking as he was talking, like, would I just take my potatoes and dig them and put them in dirt? (laughs) I mean, that's how they grew. (laughs) I think it's a little different. (laughs) It's like reverse. It's like putting it back into the earth. But the the oxalate piece is very interesting to me. And what I heard from him is potatoes are the biggest thing to, to limit because you can't ferment them. Right. Well, if you think about... I feel like we need to create a chart or something that has the seasons in which foods are actually grown in. Cause I mean, there's some truth to that. Like we can buy anything all year round, well, especially here in California, anything all year round, and it's not necessarily grown in those seasons. So I feel like we need a chart of when things were originally grown. And those are the seasons in which you eat those foods. So then you have the variation of not eating the oxalates all year long. People eat potatoes all year long. Yeah. A couple times a week. Yeah, no, I, that would be a great chart. Can you make that? Yeah, I'll put on my list of things to do. <laughs> I, know what, I know what the resetters are thinking right now. We will make it. Don't worry. Yes, we will make it. <laughs> yeah, because we want it for ourselves. So stay tuned. I think that would be a good pl- place. We could put it on Instagram. So if you guys don't follow us on Instagram, follow, us, follow Dr. Mindy Pels on Instagram. And we'll make sure that when we get the chart done, it gets posted there. So. Well, and then you'd get the... Then it, you then. I think what it would help people do is when you start eating seasonally, you open yourself up to trying different fruits, different vegetables, different types of greens. And so now you're getting different bacteria types rather than eating. It's like that plant diversity concept that Mm -hmm. Dr. Terry has rather than you're eating the same, same types of veggies and fruits over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. We didn't even really dive into, I wonder where, if he eats fruit at all. Because Paul Saldadino really talked about how when you look at a plant, it's the root and the stem that has the most oxalates and lectins and toxins in them, whereas the fruit is actually meant to be eaten. So mm-hmm. the, you, don't, you don't damage, the, if you think of it from the plant survival standpoint, that you're not going to kill the plant by picking the fruit. So there's not as many toxins in it. Right. That makes sense. So that's interesting. I I would say too, like, if you think about like, I'm thinking about raspberries, like their bushes are really prickly and thorny, but I think that's the protecting agent around the fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But again, it's only seasonal, right? Like you don't get raspberries all year long. So I think it's again, going into that variation of it's not something we're meant to eat on a consistent basis all the time. Yeah. And then also the, this idea that plants are protecting themselves. I, I'm not going to lie. That has also been mind-blowing to me 
But it makes sense. Everything has an intelligence inside of it. And everything, I mean, I just really want to point this piece out is that everything is meant for survival. Mm -hmm. Your body's geared for survival. Plants are geared for survival. So every living species on the planet, their number one goal is survival. Now, he talked about how the second goal with some some species is re- reproducing, which was really interesting. And that was he started off in the beginning about that. But I, I feel like if we have so lost touch with the fact that if we're under a tremendous amount of stress, we're building disease. And the reason we're building disease is because everything in the body shuts down because when you're under stress, all the body wants to do is stay alive. So it shuts down, it shuts down digestion, it shuts down immunity, it shuts everything down so that it can, it thinks it's running from a bear. So then when you look at the foods you're eating and you realize that they also are programmed for survival. So even in meat, you know, that when, he, uh, when we talk about loving on animals before they get killed, that would make more sense to me than, than an animal that's in a, in a really tight cage that's been like injected with lots of different antibiotics and growth hormones in it and put in very stressful environments for a long time leading up to its kill, I would think that that animal is going to have more stress hormones inside of it. And you just, and then you look at the plants, like it's just so interesting that everything is programmed for survival. Mm-hmm. Well, and if you go back to the animals, if you think about like a farm that's just like turning and burning animals, I mean, they're stressed because the animal is trying to survive, but it's also, it's in a caged environment. It's not getting to roam. It's fighting for food. It's fighting for resources, just like any other, just like we do as humans. I mean, there's a reason they call them happy cows out on the grass. Like when they're out being free and they have plenty of food and they're doing what, I mean, they're happy. The other thing I have to show you, like as he was talking, I was thinking about my little processed keto bites here. And I was like, I don't even, these are like the nuts in them, but it's a packaged food. And I was thinking, okay, you know, when you come to diets like keto, you go, okay, well, this could be really, this is going to help my blood sugar. But then you start to think about like packaged food and just how far away packaged food of any kind is from our ancestral living. That's what I was going to say. Okay. So what I loved about what he said there was that they weren't survive like the caveman, or even if you go back, they weren't surviving. They were thriving because we are here today because they were thriving and they obviously life was good enough to where people wanted to have sex. But then I, what blew my mind on that is how many people are walking around today, like with disease, gut dysbiosis, no sex drive, depressed. So they don't want to have a relationship. And then I think about it from like a, you know, an ongoing survival of our species. We have, we have millions of people walking around right now that are so disconnected from other people, so disconnected from themselves, are sick, are suffering. Like we have to change something or we are not going to pass up, like we are not going to thrive and procreate and continue being a living species. I, I think that's the most pro- profound thing I've ever heard come out of your mouth. Thank you. No, I, I, and I've been thinking a lot about that with the pandemic and feeling like something is revealing itself here in the, this imbalance of how we're living life. Mm -hmm. And I remember the first time we interviewed Zach Bush, 
he, remember when he cried and he was so upset because he just felt like we were moving towards extinction as a human species. And as touching as that moment was, I also was like, is he overreacting? And since the pandemic and the more people we interview, like Dr. Schindler, I am starting to think we are on a, on a, on pace to really go into extinction if we do not do something different, like immediately. Mm-hmm. And when he brought that to our attention, that there were these two visceral things that you do, eating and sex, that create this chemical reaction inside of you. I was like, I had never thought to put those two things together as like, you have a full body experience when you do both of them. Mm-hmm. And you're right. If we are not eating foods that are supporting positive chemical changes in the body and they're killing our libido and then we don't want to have sex and we have a big infertility problem right now as well. What is happening to our species? Like there is a part of me that's like, we are not heading in a good direction. Well, and I think we live in a time where people aren't thinking about generations further than themselves. Like we think about what, like, I feel like generations before it was all about making sure that the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren and the great-great-grandchildren all had this amazing life. And I feel like, but today we don't really think past us now or maybe our kids. Like maybe we go to our grandkids, but we don't think about how life is going to continue on and how do we make the species thrive. It's more than just what we're doing for us today. It's what we're doing. I mean, you heard him talk about mothers and babies. It's about what we're doing for generations to come. Yep. But you got to be able to think a little bit deeper than you in the moment and you liking that donut. Yep. I'm, you know what I mean? It's, it's so much bigger than that. Well, that's where the food industry comes in. They have trained our taste buds right. and we're so many people aren't aware of it. We need to get somebody on this podcast that, that is like the 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 president of a food industry the food company yeah or or like some but like I'd love to know I mean I think that's what Jesse Eitzler is trying to do you know with Kellogg's CEO but I'd love to know if they realize what they're creating it's Mm -hmm. really really sad so horrible yeah but for me you know to sum this all up you guys I just feel like you, if you've been following me at all, you know I'm a fasting fan. That is not changing, by the way. I continue to be a fasting fan. The more I research it, the more I think about ancestral living, we were meant to fast. And this debate over the right diet has baffled me because I see so many things. Like I see vegetarian and vegan work for people and I see carnivore work for people. And prior to this discussion, I felt like it really has to do with your microbiome and what for what foods you're meant to eat. And I would say it still has to do with that, but he took it to another level. And it made me think about how we can be eating some certain foods and preparing them in a way that's more supportive of what our body wants. So, yeah. so many answers for me on this one. Oh, so good. Uh, we'll have to bring him back for sure. <laughs> yeah, we'll bring him back. And please let us know, you guys. Find us on social media, The Resetter Podcast on Instagram. Let us know what you think because we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. You put the whole foods in, you take all empty foods out, you put organic food in, and you shake bad toxins out. You eat ketobiotic and your microbiome shouts. That's what it's all about. You put fast cycling in, you take over 
fast types out. You download Carp Manager where your food is all craft out. That's what it's all about. That's what resetting is all about.